Welcome back, all of you wicked cool kids. I'm Kristen, and we've got another exciting episode lined up for you today in our interview with the DM series. Today, I'm joined by the infamous, the brutal, and the one and only, the tall Tom. Hey, Tom, how are you on this crisp autumn day? I'm extremely happy. And yeah, if anybody out there listening thinks they know another tall Tom, by definition, you don't, because I am the tall Tom. The clear that there's no ambiguity. I mean, there. I'm the only one, right? The one and only, um, yeah, copyright, trademark, whatever it is, copyright, trademark. Yeah. There it is. I totally um, own it, or at least I will do as soon as we finish this recording. <laughs> um, all right, so we're gonna start out with easy questions. Ready? Okay, great. How long have you been playing tabletop role playing games? Okay, this might be easy, but I'm not going to do it short. Um, Great. When I was about eight, I discovered a vintage 1981 copy of the basic D&D rules, ah. uh, which if anybody wants to Google it, the Tom Moldvay one just has the most beautiful picture of a dragon being fought by a sorceress. Uh-huh. Um, my dad had bought it, read it, Completely failed to understand it. I think it scared him. I like uh, understandably kind of blew his mind. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he hid it, and then I found it, and I read it, and my tiny little mind went pop, um, <sighs> trying to understand what the hell this thing was. Yeah. I didn't like nobody else where I grew up in the north of England had ever heard of role playing games. So I started reading it. Um, I did that thing of going into found the local game shop went in and at the time there was basic D and then there was advanced dungeon dragons yes, uh, yes and yes. so started kind of buying things with pocket money all of which were totally incompatible rule sets and made no <laughs> sense um and then they introduced the second edition of advanced dungeon dragons and i just went all right well i will buy every single thing this company makes then um so that would have been what kind of early 90s nice. um and i played continuously for 10 years with my group of people who we all taught each other how to role play uh-huh. there were no podcasts nobody else we could ask right. um killed a lot of their characters good times mm. and then um <laughs> just gonna leave that that moment of pain hanging because I feel we're going to come back and talk about that. We later. are absolutely coming back to <laughs> <Yeah>. that topic. <laughs> that's that's a teaser. Um, mm-hmm. I think the thing back then was because I only had the group of people that I'd taught to play it, um, and we used to play every Sunday from kind of twelve noon through until the evening. But there was a real sense of I could only run the kind of games they wanted to play, so yep. they bought out. TSR, who who made Dungeons & Dragons at the time, bought out Ravenloft, the gothic mm-hmm. horror um, world for D&D, and my players were not interested at all. All they wanted to do was commit goblin genocide yeah, uh, yeah. and get all the loot. Um, and so there was a sense when I went to university of, well, I'm going to find my people who want to play the kind of games that may be a bit darker and a bit more character-based, a bit more story-based. Um, and I arrived at the games club at uni and went, hi, I'm new. What games can I join? Uh-huh. Um, and everybody was wearing 
um, like black leather jackets <laughs> and heavy metal band T-shirts. That I, I was not aware uh-huh. of those bands. And they all turned and looked at me when all the tables are full. Oh, poor and baby Tom. <laughs> yeah, I just, I left and I put all my D&D stuff in the attic. No. Yeah. and I, well, I know had... that's not where the story ends, so. Oh, yeah. Okay, yep. It's, it's all a process. Um, <laughs> yeah, I went into what quite a few old role players called the deep freeze, where I tried to pretend I was a normal functioning grown-up and that role-playing mm-hmm. games were too silly for me. Uh, sure. Um, and I discovered a podcast called uh, D&D is for Nerds, where a group of Australian dickheads, I say this with extreme love, um, <laughs> play D&D. And the idea that you could listen to people playing D&D as opposed to it just being something that you did in private with your friends yeah, melted my mind. And I couldn't stop listening to it. And then slowly I went, well, then maybe I could start playing again. Um. And that was probably about eight years ago at this point. And now I think about very little else on a daily basis oh. of my next gaming fix. That's interesting. So I have um, I have an outline of how I anticipated this conversation was going to go. And you, uh, I think, flip-flopped a couple of things on me, which I'm very excited about. But I... That's well, my are... game's master style, right? I yeah, it... think it's going to be one thing. And then, whoa. One hundo. All right. So um, I was actually anticipating, so we will get into this later, but I know that you are very into theater. Yes. And I was actually thinking that perhaps it was reverse and it was theater that got you into D&D. I love that it's potentially the opposite. Um, So we're going to put a pin in that for a second. Um, But did this love that you cultivated as that little kid who found your vintage version hidden away in your dad's stuff. Did, do you think that that influenced your career choice at all? I think there's definitely a sense that the 20 years I was a professional theater director was me, my coping strategy for not having role-playing games in my life. I think that's probably (laughs) fair. Um, Definitely my sense of, uh, like I love telling stories and I yeah. love collaborating with people to tell stories. Um, and in one level, yeah, putting on plays can feel a little bit like getting a gaming group together and telling this amazing story together. Um, but coming back to it, there were certain itches that it, so as a director, I'm never on the stage. I'm always behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, and as a dungeon master, finally getting to play all the, you know, many different characters and use my many different silly voices, um, was kind of very refreshing. Definitely now, cause I, I don't write many of my own scenarios. I tend to do published stuff uh-huh. and it, it's interesting to me that I approach that in the same way as I do a director. So I will sometimes take a, a story, like a, a published campaign apart and kind of move bits and go, well, the storytelling's not very clear here. I need to change that. And I find that easier, much, much easier to do. And it feels like my director brain, um, as opposed to kind of making my own material, which I guess would be a writer brain. It was another thing that I was going to probe into your brain about um because yes i 
feel like the things that I have played with you have all been pre-written. And I was wondering if that was because you are used to looking at a script and then going that way and that was comfortable for you. Or if, um, you know what though, I'm going to stop what I was saying. And I, it's interesting to me that as a director who prefers to be back here instead of on stage, you enjoy so much letting loose with your NPCs and your Australian Aarakocras because that is canon. Um, Fact, 100%. um, But so I, I think I want to ask, in now you finding love of playing NPCs, do you think that in your professional life you would ever step out of director role and go onto the stage? Or it just hasn't quite crossed that barrier yet. Mm-hmm. So when I was at uni in my, you know, recovering gamer phase, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I did a show at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, which is either a festival or a massive theatre networking event, depending on how you look at it. Um, but I, that was the last time I acted and I played, you know, we had the, the 12 noon slot for the entire month of August. And by the end of that, I went, I don't think I like acting on stage because you have to do <laughs> the same thing every day. And it, the first three performances were magical. And then after that, I got really bored. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, gaming ticks all the right buttons because I get to play some characters, quite a few characters as the games master. I get to do the thing I like most as a director, which is bring together and enable a group of people. So while I like playing the NPCs, the NPCs are not the stars of the story. That has to be the players. So that kind of setting up a situation and then just giving space to the players to see what they do feels like the director bit of me. Uh Interestingly, and this is not a commitment, I am talking to another theatre director friend of mine, and we will not be the first people to do this, but we are kind of going so... What might our version of playing a role-playing game in front of an audience be mm-hmm. like? So that conversation is happening. I love that. I ideally, we would cut straight to the critical role selling out Wembley Arena, but I think you have to work to get to that point, uh-huh, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Baby steps. Um, that's exciting. I, can't, I cannot wait to hear more about that. Early, um, early days, early days. Okay, so when you, back in uni, when you walked in Mm. and you saw those people um, in their black leather, uh, I don't know, maybe even guy liner, and I'm I'm visualizing spiky chainy things too. You're not wrong. (laughs) When you walked into that, were they playing Dungeons and Dragons? Or were they playing something else? Yeah, I think Birthright had come out, which was a a campaign in D&D where you can... Um, you are an adventuring party, but each one of you is the monarch of a different kingdom, and there are all kinds of mechanics. And I, I was really excited to play that because it was the hot new thing. But yeah. they had like twelve players around the table. Um, yeah, I suspect uh, there was probably some vampire going on, which I, I was desperately keen to get into. And my players uh-huh. uh, hadn't met, and I strongly suspect in that room uh, was the great love of my life, Call of Cthulhu, somewhere. Yes. But it, it was not yet our time to meet. So when was your time to meet? Because that, that transitions beautifully into um, my next portion, which is I, I know that you run a bunch of dist- different systems at this point. Um, so obviously at some point 
you found um, your tentacled love of your life. Uh, when did that happen? Was it directly after D&D, um, you know, the, the next step? Or were there a couple of other, I don't know, crumbs along the way that led you to that? How did that happen? Yeah, well, um, how did I meet our great underwater overlord, Cthulhu? <laughs> um, I, like, I knew about Call of Cthulhu. I read reviews in the role-playing magazines back in the 90s so i knew mm -hmm. it was there and i also immediately upon meeting the reading the reviews went this sounds amazing and also i can never sell my players on it mm. you know because it is not like the great strength of dungeon dragons is it's an amazing power fantasy of of getting stronger and more powerful and becoming the world's greatest warrior and wizard and almost godlike um and in Call of Cthulhu, you will always remain squishy and vulnerable. And indeed, yeah. while some of your skills may get better over time, in general, you are going to get more broken and traumatized and <laughs> wounded. I play in an on-off campaign as a Call of Cthulhu character. He's done about uh, nine, ten scenarios. And he started off as Dennis Norman uh, of the American Postal Service uh, in the 1920s, the world's most optimistic man. He is mm -hmm. now walking on crutches um, and uh, no longer believes that his dead wife uh, can hear him when he goes to a graveside and is uh, deeply traumatised by everything. So, and thus the phrase going postal was born from exactly. sweet baby Dennis. <laughs> sweet. Bless his little moustache. Um, yeah, so coming out of my deep freeze, um, I put an ad, uh, like uh, I went on Meetup, and there was a group uh, run by my very good friend James, who's also in my long-running Call of Cthulhu campaign, mm -hmm. um, where he was running D and D, and it was great coming back to it and going, "Oh, Fifth Edition is so streamlined; they've knocked off all the janky bits that were really confusing from Second Edition." Yeah, and it, I think it took me about three months of going. Uh, playing with James and his group once a week to go, this is great. I love being a player, but I really need to start running it, getting mm -hmm. the starter set, running it for a group of friends. Um, and that group had been going for probably a couple of years. We'd finished a couple of D&D campaigns and it got round to Halloween. And I went, is now the moment? where I finally yes. I might try Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. And I got the free quick start, The Haunting, which actually you and I are halfway now replaying. Yep. Um, and I ran it for them. And it was just, oh, my God, I love the system. I love the world. Uh, I love the kinds of stories that we can tell because it's much more grounded. Mm. And it's much more about kind of real relatable characters having unrelatable and horrific things happen to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so just immediately after that session, I want, I went, I want more of this. And I guess it, it, it tied in quite well with the pandemic because the group that I was kind of getting going and going, Hey, we could run a, a campaign of Call of Cthulhu. Some of them were going, yes, I'm really into this. And some of them, which is very understandable because it's so different from D&D, went, no, actually, something where you, no, the you. odds are stacked against you and we're likely to die and go insane. No, that's not fun, Tom. Why? What's wrong with you? Um, and then when the pandemic hit and I joined a server of my 
one of my favourite podcasts until this podcast launched. So now, obviously, my second favourite podcast. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> the Good Runs of Jackson Elias, uh, which is a, a basically an advice podcast about how to play Call of Cthulhu oh. from some of the key designers of Call of Cthulhu. I went on their server and they were going, hey, sign up for games online. And I was going, you can play games online? Yeah. What? Um, and then suddenly finding this community where you could just sign up and play something. Um, and I think one of, like Call of Cthulhu has many strengths that I will probably expand upon, but one what's really great is I think a lot of the joy of D&D comes from building a character over time. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Call of Cthulhu, you can play out a horror film in three hours yeah. from kind of start to finish. So the one shots are really satisfying. Um, so then suddenly going, oh, actually, with online, we're not tied to our local four players and what their taste is. You can go hunting for the kind of players who want to play the kind of games you want to run. Hence, you and me playing games together all the way across, uh, across the vast ocean. ocean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, yeah, it's been really. That realization that we can play whatever kind of game, whatever kind of game we like, it is now possible online to find people to play it with who really want to play the games we love. Yeah, which is a whole separate amazing thing that we could talk about. Um, okay, so so you really want to, you really really want to. Let's talk about D and D versus Call of Cthulhu. And we could even insert other things if you if you really want to, because I know, oh, yeah. like I said, you run you run a bunch of different systems: Call of Cthulhu, um, Dungeons and Dragons, the the Blade Runner one. What is yeah. is that just called? Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner RPG. Yeah. So I did um, watch that yeah. movie the other night. By the way, <gasps> I forgot I forgot to message what, how, you. How was it? What did you think? Um, I Film review slot. Need to jingle. <laughs> um, it was great. And I sat there and I said, this is exactly the moment that Tom said didn't was completely unnecessary in the whole movie. Um, and then I said, didn't he do that to Princess Leia too? And then we had a whole separate conversation. Oh, yeah. But yes, yeah. uh, it, it... Harrison Ford's character's uh, tenuous relationship with the concept of sexual consent. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a problem um, in those films. Yes, but it was it was interesting to me because I looked at Chet and I said, I'm pretty sure that Tom said that this was his favorite film, like of all time. Is that, did you say that? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I felt like that was, now that I've watched it, that gave me another puzzle piece to the Tom puzzle. It's it's still missing some pieces, but it definitely filled in a piece for me. It made the picture a little easier, a little easier to see. It makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. So um, those three, and then yeah. are there other ones that you run as well? Yeah, so Blade Runner is made by a great um, Swedish company called Free League, and they uh, their system, the Year Zero system, has a number of different uh, kind of settings, and they're really great at adapting the system to be perfect for the kind of storytelling that they're doing. So mm-hmm. Blade Runner, I think, is fantastic because it really captures the moral dilemma of you work for the state essentially hunting down freed slaves how long can your character keep yeah. doing that before they realize it's a morally bankrupt thing to do mm-hmm. um like so great having both as a film and as a role-playing game having a story where the whole point of it is to realize that your day job is utterly morally bankrupt 
uh, and that you need to stop doing it. I feel like I feel like that's a that's a bigger life lesson for a lot of people in a lot of the jobs we yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. I've yet to have a session that I'm running where somebody goes, "Oh, I'm like a blade runner." Oh, I need to rethink. <laughs> but it's like very rarely does a D&D character going, do you know, maybe goblin genocide is wrong and I should stop being an adventurer. Um, I, I did. I did. If one of my <sighs> characters in Jason's campaign did go, why are we, why are we really? killing all of them? Just because they're, just be, this doesn't feel right. Um, she was great, but yeah, I, I think she was disagreed with, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but I love that. I think that, one of the most interesting things in, in role-playing games is the moral dilemma, and not mm. necessarily using that to push a, any particular moral agenda, but just sure. um, watching players and their characters grappling with what's the right thing to do here, because there's not one right answer, I think is mm -hmm. glorious. Yeah. Very for it. Um, yeah, so they... Uh, the Year Zero engine has Blade Runner, it has Vason, which is a gorgeous role-playing game about um, kind of like Swedish folklore hunting, like you go around hunting trolls and um, little Swedish pixies, um, and it's a very different kind of horror, more gentle kind of fairy tale horror. It's just gorgeous. I'm going to um, need you to forward that information to our favourite Swedish people that we know, uh, hint, hint, the one that I know is currently listening yeah. as we record. It's so, um, so good. Yeah. And I, I'm, again, very happy. One of my great joys in life at the moment is introducing uh, people to new games. Yeah. Uh, Vason is gorgeous. Uh, they do one, um, I've forgotten the name of him, but there's a Swedish artist whose work was adapted into uh, Tales from the Loop on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And there's a role playing game of his sort of weird 1980s with sci-fi stuff oh. um and of course finally from uh free league with my obsession with 1980s films and horror there is the alien role-playing game oh yes i do know somebody else who oh, was it's... um playing that a couple of other people that are uh yeah um, so um, good our producer is saying that the name might be simon Stalinhag. I'm sure that I messed it up yeah. because there's a little no, that... circle over the A. But um, does that see? I totally knew that that was his name. I just didn't want to risk saying it out loud and went yeah. a very long way around to trick you into doing. Well, that. I made the fool out of myself, so don't worry. I'm happy to take that bullet for you, Tom. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, the original question I think you were asking me was D and D versus Call of. Yeah, I mean, right? maybe sure. Let's let's say because I feel like those are probably your top two. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, okay. I think that's true. So, um, what are the pros and cons of each? What what do you love about each one? What do you not love about the other one? And maybe um, what gives one over the other an an edge towards the the top of of your heart space. <laughs> I guess the first thing I want to say, I mean, it's probably people could pick up from me talking about the list of games I play. Like, D&D uh -huh. for me is a bit like pizza in that I really love pizza. Okay. Just don't want pizza every night of the week. And I think um, what's great about role-playing games is that lots of people who came 
for lots of people, if you say role-playing games and you say Dungeons & Dragons, it means the same thing. Sure. Like Dungeons & Dragons is the only role-playing game they've mm-hmm. experienced. It's the only thing they know. And that's okay as long as they're loving it. But I really think sometimes switching up, playing a different system with a different style and a different feel, not only is it kind of richer and you can go, oh, well, I'm kind of in the mood for horror, but I'm also kind of in the mood for superhero in a medieval setting. Um, So being able to kind of mix it up is great. But I also think learning to play in different ways and it makes you a better role player. So having run Call of Cthulhu, I think there's stuff from that I bring into my D&D and vice versa. Mm. Um, so I would strongly encourage everybody to like try try another system as well uh, yeah. and diversify a bit. It's been I- um, really interesting to do, to play both. And I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that Call of Cthulhu is just it's more relatable because it's, it's real people with real jobs in the real world. And you take the the fantasy aspect out of it. Now you also insert this cosmic horror element, which, you know, doesn't necessarily exist in real life. Um, but I really hope it doesn't. <laughs> me too. Um, but it, it makes it, it makes you question, right? Like versus, Oh, these are just goblins and we kill goblins. Cause that's what we do. Versus, mm. oh, hey, there's a playground of kids over there. Dude, nobody can call it. For, well, maybe. I'm not going to say nobody. There's always, there are always people. But people in general aren't going to go, oh, that's a group of kids. We're just going to go kill the group of kids because that's what we do. You you are able to bring a different brain to the table there that I think you do when you're playing those high fantasy kind of games. Yeah. But there was a moment... Um... I was a player in a, a convention game of Call of Cthulhu quite early on in me still figuring out what Call of Cthulhu could really do, where we realised that the evil monster that we'd fought a couple of times was there was a young girl in it and she was kind of a were creature. Uh, and we were really, and it was incurable, and we were really left with that kind of moral dilemma. Yeah. Um, yeah. I adopted her and took her around Europe kind of, selectively masquerading people I didn't like very much, but my character was morally grey, so that was fine. But that kind of, oh, nothing is necessarily that simple, mm-hmm. um, I think is really interesting. Yeah, I guess to just give an overview, so uh, in Call of Cthulhu, we are playing in the works of Lovecraft, but minus the rampant racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so... There are not exactly supernatural creatures, but there is are these vast um, alien consciousnesses. Uh-huh. Uh, magic sort of works, but seldom in the way we think it's going to. And you have an ability called sanity that is like your hit points, just chipped away. And as you're losing sanity, I, as the games master, can make your character suddenly spontaneously kind of do things that are not in your character's best interest. Right. So in D&D, I go, oh, there's some zombies and they're disgusting uh, <laughs> and they're terrifying and zombies shouldn't exist because they're alien and, you know, the dead should say dead. And everybody goes, great. Well, I think they've probably got about 22 hit points. I think I can take them. Uh-huh. Um, whereas in Call of Cthulhu, you see something that shouldn't exist and your brain breaks a little bit. Uh, yeah. And then 
you are going to be behaving suboptimally for a bit until you have a sit down and a cup of tea. Right. Um, yeah, so it's a very different, and you're never going to get more hit points. Uh, you always stay with a very small pool of hit points. So if you get in a hand-to-hand fight with a huge tentacle monster, yeah. uh, your end will be quite swift. <laughs> As it often is. play very differently. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It, it, you know, it, you have to, you have to plan differently. It can't always be go in and bite, 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 and just see what happens. Yeah. Um, because like you said, the, that, that pool is very small and, um, you know, you, you look over your shoulder, you look into a mirror and you see something that you weren't expecting. You see something that has affected you. And now you can't even act the way that you had anticipated that you were going to act either. Um, yeah, lovely. All right. So because they're different, how does your approach to preparing for the sessions differ? Does it? Uh, yeah, it does. I think. Um... So one thing I guess to talk about is combat. So in D and D, a really interesting combat, you know, on a on a map with kind of different terrain things and a number of different enemies with different abilities, you could be looking at a couple of hours. Like I, when I was running Curse of Strahd, I had a particular fight with uh, some undead that went on over that was the entirety of two three hour sessions um, to finish this combat, and it was incredibly tense. A long time. Oh, yeah. Um, it was intense, but it was brutal. Um, so in D&D, there's a certain amount of making sure I know what the monsters do, thinking about their tactics. It's much more important that I have a detailed map um, that provides kind of interesting environments. I've mm-hmm. run a few D&D combats, um, kind of theatre of the mind, but especially when you're playing online, just feels like it needs a map. Yeah, yeah. And that requires a different kind of preparation. Got to get the tokens ready. If I'm using any automation on the virtual tabletop, then I need all the tokens to be set up correctly. Call of Cthulhu, I find some pictures of 1920s Boston and I put them up as my background map. And it's all theatre of the mind. Um, And instead what I'm doing is making sure I know all the beats of the story uh, and how very often there are things you can make happen if the action's getting a bit slow. So knowing what the kind of bangs are that I can throw at the players if they're getting lost, it, it is an investigative horror game. So making sure I'm clear on where the clues are and what the clues lead to. Uh, and the bit that I really enjoy, so I, for three and a half years, I've been running a campaign in Call of Cthulhu called The Masks of Neolathotep. It's a legendary, like one of the greatest campaigns ever written uh, mm-hmm. in its new edition, 600 pages long. <sighs> We've probably got another two years before we finish this thing. Oh, my God. Um, but it involves going all over the world in the 1920s. And so I know all kinds of things about Kenya, Shanghai, Australia, Egypt, ancient Egypt, yeah. uh, prohibition in the States, uh, like doing all this research, not because I have to, but because it's really interesting. Yeah. And then going, oh, I could steal that and use that in the game. Um, whereas in D&D, like we're doing Tomb of Annihilation, I think I might have watched a David Attenborough show about a jungle, maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, 
So you're saying Call of Cthulhu has made you smarter. Oh, yeah. It's made me a historian. I (laughs) knew. It'll be your retirement job now. Yeah. Um, Look forward to. All right. Well, okay. So let's go where you knew from the beginning what I was going to talk about. And it's your love of killing people, Tom. I know very intimately that you have no qualms killing characters. Um, Ah. Even as big bad meanie you are, you do take time to decompress and process things with your players, which is amazing. Um, But let's talk about what it's like for you to be a murderer. (laughs) Can we just want to be really clear? So the statement... Tom, you really like killing people. Can we just be hyper? Tom, you like killing okay. player characters. In game? Not the, never the player, always the character. He doesn't want to be incriminated in anything, so I'm strictly, absolutely yeah. only talking about says... fictional characters yeah. in our role-playing games, probably, maybe, shh, definitely, because yeah. he's telling me to say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no good. We're, I think we're legally covered now. Okay, good. Um I think part of what makes a role-playing game... I mean, there are lots of role-playing games out there. There are some with kind of no violence at all, and it's about how your kind of bake shop is doing, which those games are gorgeous. (laughs) Um, But many role-playing games show their wargaming roots and combat, you know, whether or not it's long, tactical, highly complicated combat like D&D 5th Ed, or it's short, brutal, horrible combat in Call of Cthulhu... Combat is a lot of the rule systems of most role-playing games. Yeah. And I think uh, what I want to create is tension and peril. And I think there is a little bit of a moral element to this for me. I I realised this the other day. So as as a kid, I used to watch the A-Team. And every episode of the A-Team, they would hole up in a farmhouse, get a jeep, turn the jeep into a tank by uh-huh. covering it in boxes. And then they would come out and the baddies would come at them and they would fire machine guns and throw grenades at the baddies. And the effect of the machine gun bullets and the grenades would be to cause the their baddies to fly several feet in the air and have a nice lie down. Yeah. And at the end of the fight, they would get up and literally, having been shot with a machine gun, dust themselves down and limp off. Uh-huh. As you do. As as maybe. Um, and I just kind of... Um, there is a question for me about role-playing games where you have a fight and then you've defeated the enemy and you have a bit of a nap and then for you it's not like you had a fight at all. Uh-huh. Um, what that kind of says about actually how violence works and that every time there is a fight there is a very high chance of negative consequence for both parties yeah so i guess in my games i want combat to feel like it's dangerous i want there to feel risk and i want to feel that there's consequences um and so i will never i i don't fudge i used to fudge in um in the 90s i made a strong promise to myself coming back i would never fudge and now i don't so i never Uh pretend to roll higher than I did and I never equally pretend to roll lower than when I did sure. um and it's kind of where the dice go the dice go 
in D&D with the pre-written scenarios, there's a lot of effort being expended on balance and the idea that a character should be kind of proportional to the threat that they're facing. In Call of Cthulhu, that's, there is no balance. It's irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, you are an ant beneath the foot of Cthulhu, and if you don't run away, you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sometimes in order for the stories to feel real, if the dice say somebody dies, then somebody dies. Yeah. And it it happens. It um I think I have it, between one shots also, mm. but um I think I've experienced the most character death with you. <laughs> Um, but that actually leads me to to what I want to to finish with is um, I love that there are there are a lot of things that you've thought about in your attempt to make things a little grittier and more realistic, like actions have consequences, right? You're going to get into a fight. You're going to come out with a lasting lingering wound. You're going to have a, a hole in your neck from this thing that happened. You're going to have a scar. You're going to be missing a finger. You're going to, whatever the consequence is, but you have systems in place for your players to ensure that they feel safe and comfortable. And I want to say like cared after. Mm. Um, so I want to know if these are things that you had seen and then you decided to implement or if they're of your own creation, but namely, um, you know, you have buttons in the game where you can pause, stop, skip forward. I don't want to go through the details of this scene. Like I can accept the scene for what it is, but I don't need to hear specifics. Let's just jump over this. Um, documents for players to read through before session zero even hits. So you're like, hey, this is how I'm going to play. And if this isn't the play style for you, great. I've got those bakery shop. TTRPGs that we can go and see which kind of bread you're going to bake for the day. But this, you know, journey into Chult is probably not for you. Um, and checklists of what's acceptable for play. So everybody's on the same page when you get to the table. Uh, what's off limits? What is okay to maybe talk about in generality, but leave specifics out? Those are things that I, as a person, really, really appreciate. Um, are those yeah how did you how did you come to implement those things because i feel like they probably weren't always there and you put them in at some point but but talk to me yeah. about them and they definitely weren't there in the 90s um <laughs> yeah. so I, I i guess uh yeah two things like uh one th just a thought came up on kind of character death that what we don't so we don't want to play games where there's no risk at all but we also don't or I mean, maybe people do, or taste is fine. Me personally, I don't want to go back to the early 80s versions of D&D, &D, which were Meat Grinder, where you had a new character every week because you stepped on a trap and there was yeah, no role. Yeah. It was save or die. Um, so what we're looking for is peril. Um, but if it, if it ever gets to the stage that my use of the lingering wounds and the short rest, long rest rules from the Dungeon Master's Guide are creating a churn of characters that mm -hmm. mean that people don't have long enough to emotionally connect with them. Um, then something's gone wrong there too. It's it's how to keep, and it's a fine balance, how to keep yeah. the threat of death. I think in my Call of Cthulhu campaign, everybody's now on probably their third character. It tends to be somebody dies every six months. And <laughs> that is enough for it to be... Um, for it to feel something. Yeah, yeah. But I guess what I learned when I was a theatre director 
it, the industry is much better now. But when I started out, there was this real thing of the more you can suffer for your role, like actively, deliberately doing things that we know now sort of induce artificially post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. the more traumatized yeah. you can become for your role, the better on stage. And it became really clear to me that one, that was masking a lot of abuse uh, from directors to actors that I witnessed in rehearsal rooms. And secondly, that it didn't make the work any better for the audience. And I, I met an acting teacher after I'd been in the industry for about 10 years who went, the question is, how do you act safely? And I think in role-playing games, there's a similar thing that that we want the peril. Like, we want to feel things when we're role-playing. We want to rejoice when our characters succeed. And we do want to feel genuinely sad and moved when somebody dies, in the same way as when we're watching the early and only the early series of Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, the Red Wedding... Oh, spoiler. Some characters die in Game of Thrones, people. Um <laughs> And when they die in the early series of Games of Thrones, you you really feel something because you're invested in those characters. Um, but we're watching it for that kind of cathartic feeling of, of grief. And so in a role-playing game, we have to be careful. We want to experience all the emotions, and especially in horror role-playing game, which is a genre I love. There's such a fine line between experiencing a sense of kind of dread or loss um, and being kind of genuinely upset. And I think in the 90s, there was a bit of a thing in horror role-playing games about let's go as dark and as edgy as we possibly can. Yeah. And some rather sadistic game masters kind of leveraging that for maximum effect. Um and uh, like turning off the lights and, and dropping um, squidgy uh, like yeah. boiled eggs and selling their eyeballs down the back of people's necks and okay. me going, well, that's that could be fun, but also that could be <laughs> horrific. How do you know? <laughs> and coming back into the role-playing game, I was really impressed. A lot of work has been done, especially in the, in the horror game section of things around safety tools. Yeah. So nothing I do is original. Okay. Um, the two most popular tools, so one is the X card, which is um, originally was just a card with an X on it that would be in the middle of the table and anybody could tap it. And that's a, a signal for I'm genuinely finding this upsetting and not in a fun way. Yep. We need to skip the scene. And on Foundry Virtual Tabletop, there is um, like a safety tools module you can add where you can absolutely do that. Yep. Um, and the other one is lines and veils. So that's conversation before the session where, and you can have a tech tick list. So I remember in our Tomb of Annihilation group, lots of uh, healthy joshing around the idea of uh, having a phobia of thirst. And going, is that, is that which version of thirst is that? Oh, I'm feeling thirsty. No, um, I didn't do that. It wasn't me. Yeah, and we're not going to mention any lees. We're going to stay healthily anonymous. But 
yeah, I think it's really useful to have an explicit conversation at the beginning where we go. For sure. Uh, and there are, there are spreadsheets you can do so it's online and anonymous if you feel difficult saying it out loud. Um, but many, many people, because of real world trauma, don't want certain things in their game. Yeah. And I think for the whole group, because the games master doesn't necessarily control this. It's an improvised game, whether or not it's D or D or Call of Cthulhu. For everybody at the table to know, we are not going to include the following. Yep. We're not going to, if somebody uh, finds it deeply upsetting, we're not going to capture and torture one of the enemies. Right. Um, or, as a veil, you can acknowledge that the things exist in the world, but you're always going to fade to black. Exactly. Yep. You're not going to describe it in detail. I guess the final thing that I do that I... Uh, again, I'd heard of from other people, but every session closes out with highs and lows. Yep. So each person talks about what was their highlight from the session, what was their their kind of low point. And I think that's really useful both for me as a games master, constantly reflecting and trying to improve my skills. But it's not always about giving feedback to the games master. So somebody going, actually, my low point was when we spent an hour role-playing shopping. Yep, yep, yep. Some people, Travis William in Critical Role, do not like shopping episodes. Yeah, yeah. And for the rest of the group to hear that and be able to adjust is great. And similarly, for people to be able to celebrate, like the successes go, I love that moment where you did that really cool thing. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of decompression at the end of a session. Um, and especially if somebody has has, like a character has died in it that space for everybody to talk about how they're feeling before you end the call, I think is yeah. really important. I agree. I really, really love the high and low system. And you, for a very long time, would remind us that it doesn't necessarily have to be about your DMing style. It can be anything. And I, I don't know that I ever took it as being feedback on your DMing style, although it, certainly could have been, but I, I do 100% agree that it's really helpful for everybody at the table to know what I enjoyed as a player, what Lee enjoyed as a player, what Chet enjoyed as a player, whoever. So we as players can continue on and make the game enjoyable for all of us. And it does also give us, like you said, the opportunity to say like, I really enjoyed when you did this really cool thing. You jumped three times and then you slid between their legs and smacked them on the butt on the way over and then got up and punched them right in the nose. And it was really colorful and creative and I loved it. And I just wanted to give you ever uh, like kudos at the end, right? Um, I think it's a really cool way to, if you're really feeling jazzed about something, to go and acknowledge your fellow players at the end too. And then, you know, Lowe's sometimes, a lot of times for me, it goes, oh, you know, like it really sucked that I couldn't roll past a five, but this is how it goes for me oh, your, sometimes. <laughs> your dice rolls are just astounding. <laughs> I will acknowledge this as now we've got an app. The module on Foundry that tracks mm -hmm. your roles and it's statistically. It is. It's not me probable. making it up. Um, but yeah, it's it's really nice to to have that at the end. So for anybody listening, if you don't implement that, I really love it as a player. It sounds like it's very helpful to you, Tom, as the DM. If anybody has any questions, you can reach out to Tom directly. He's in the server. Or if you don't know how to get in touch with him, get in touch with me because everybody knows how to get in touch with me, and I will put you in touch with Tom. Um, but yeah, 
So high five for all of those things to make your players feel super safe and um, supported throughout, especially trying situations sometimes. Um, all right. Well, listen, all of this has been an absolute pleasure to talk about, learn a little bit more about you. I'm pleasantly surprised by the way that some of these things have panned out in terms of what I anticipated versus what reality actually was. Um, and again, as merciless and unforgiving as you can be in our games, I just want to stress that I always feel safe knowing that you'll take the time with us after the game to talk about the events and that at any point in time we can pause, stop, skip over what we're doing and move to the next scene to keep everybody feeling well and whole and healthy about the experience that we're we're going through. And sometimes it's good to push through those things and sometimes it's good to take a five minute break to go to the bathroom, refresh ourselves and come back to the table. So for that, I thank you. I look forward to playing many more games with you, learning new systems, uh, preferably staying alive through it all, although I know that is highly improbable, so I won't expect it. Um, but on behalf of the WCK community, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to sit down with me today. Thank you to everyone listening to yet another episode of us rambling about different things that we think are cool to talk about. Um, and remember to stay cool. And if you can't be cool, be wicked. Until next time. Thanks so much, Tom. My pleasure. Bye, all. Bye. Thank you to Kev G. Moore for providing the music for this series. Check out his links for YouTube, Spotify and Patreon in the links below. Wherever you found us today, don't forget to like and subscribe for more great content. And if you want to find out more about what we do, how to support us, pick up some merch and find links to our friends like JB Media, visit us at wickedcoolkids.co.uk. Music